My name is Andy Slavitt. I was in the Obama administration overseeing uh, much of healthcare. Uh, now I'm a podcaster just like you at uh, what they show called In the Bubble. Yeah, not just like me. I never ran anything for any presidential administration. But here's a story. I first took notice of Andy Slavitt last March, early in the pandemic. On Twitter, he would post these long threads every evening saying, here's the kind of folks I was talking with today. And they'd be like governors and public health officials and hospital administrators. And he'd be like, here's what I learned. And it was all this info I wasn't seeing anywhere else because he was plugged in. He'd worked in the Obama administration, done a bunch of business side stuff. So he knew who to call and they took his calls. And he was putting out all this information in real time. And then he started a podcast called In the Bubble, a kind of extension of that Twitter report, one conversation at a time on tape. Political leaders, infectious disease experts, public health experts, journalists, just keeping a conversation going. What do we know? How do we stay safe? How do we keep our heads together in the meantime? So this fall, I was talking with my collaborators, Daisy Rosario and Marion Wang, who guide this show, about how in December, we'd want to look back at the coronavirus pandemic so far and ask what we'd learned, like from 40,000 feet up and what we could maybe expect. And we were like, yeah, who would we want to talk to for that? And I said, uh, I was kind of thinking Andy Slavitt? And there was a beat. And then they both said, yeah, I was kind of thinking of him too. So we asked him and he said yes. This is an arm and a leg, a show about the cost of healthcare. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter. I like a challenge. So my job here is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing issues in American life and bring you a show that's entertaining, empowering, and useful. And talking with Andy was great. We got that big picture summary of where we are. We got into the money side of what we can expect with vaccines and testing and treatment, which wasn't always pretty, but wasn't all bad news. And we ended up with some really big picture questions about the profit motive in healthcare. So here we go. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, great to be here. You've been talking to people across a political spectrum. Like you're a former Obama administration guy. You've been talking with and promoting a lot of folks in that what I would think of as that like centrist Democrat world. Uh, but you've reached outside of that. Like you've published op-eds with Scott Gottlieb, who was a Trump administration official. You have people like Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang on your podcast, right? If there's ever a time when you can put your political identity aside for five minutes, you would think a global pandemic might be that time. If not now, I don't know if we ever can. And I'm not sure we've been able to do it, but it's at least the thing we ought to be trying to do. When you agreed to come on, you know, there was a lot of stuff we did not know. Like this was in October when we reached out to you. So we didn't know, like, how's a presidential election going to come out? And there were scenarios we, we it might not even be clear by the time we taped uh, what the outcome might be. And we kind of have that answer now. And then we've also got this other big news. Three big vaccine projects, right, have announced preliminary results. They're really promising. And there's like some not great news, right? Like there's a lot of coronavirus cases all over the country. Hospitals are getting full. Healthcare providers are getting burnt out. A lot of them still don't have ready access to the personal protective equipment they need to keep them safe. And a lot of people still aren't wearing masks. And a lot of people did a lot of traveling and visiting for Thanksgiving. So we can expect the number of people getting sick and needing medical attention to get even bigger in the next few weeks. And meanwhile, Congress does not seem to be focusing on doing anything. The current presidential administration is still in charge till late January, also not super focused on controlling the pandemic or helping people through it, right, including people at all kinds of risks. So like expiring January 1st, extra unemployment benefits, student loan forbearance, an eviction moratorium from the CDC, right? So in terms of big picture context, uh, you're the 40,000 foot guy. What am I leaving out? You didn't even need me. 
You got that all right. <laughs> you didn't need me. No, you're 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 right. And you know, the information that you just gave me is much more accessible today. You know, when I started doing the Twitter uh, last March, everybody was disoriented. Nobody knew which end was up. There was no published data out there. You couldn't have done that little run you just did of events would have been very difficult to do because there was so much uncertainty. And so, you know, I started doing this because I would literally spend the day trying to solve problems. And then in the evening, um, I was like, what of it should I share? And my answer was, well, all of it. And if people don't want it too much stuff, then, you know, fine. But I literally, I'm kind of like an insider and an outsider at the same time. And that, you know, I do know these folks and people will return my calls. But I also don't give a shit if any of them are friends. I just want to get answers and get stuff done. So, you know, I, I try to do that every night. Now, today, it's not as needed because, as you just went through, people have a pretty good read of why we are where we are. Uh, and the different people have their own bent on it and their own theories. But, you know, we are in a dark period. Uh, but fortunately, we're in a dark period uh, where we will have a, uh, a dawn um, around the corner. And I think that's quite remarkable. Yeah. I mean, there's the light and the dark, right? How does it all leave you feeling? Well, it's like that expression, the darkest before the dawn is that thing you tell people when life is just really shitty, right? It's like, Hey, but the darkest before the dawn. And usually you say that you, you have no idea when the dawn is going to be right. But the, the truth is this is really unusual because things are bad. But we actually do have a very high degree of confidence when they're going to stop being bad. That is remarkable in a, in a couple of ways. One is just a remarkable feat of science. Uh, but it's also remarkable in that you ever like know someone who they lost a job and they're looking for a new job and, you know, they find a job and then they say to you, boy, if I had known it was going to be so easy to find a job, I would have enjoyed my time off. more." <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and, and, and so if someone could promise you in four months, you will have the best job of your life, you would spend those four months in a different way. And I'm not saying that you could enjoy a pandemic. What I am saying is there is real meaning during hard times. There's real meaning during times of sacrifice. There's real opportunity to find meaning helping others because after the pandemic's over, like today, you could do things and literally save people's lives because people are dying everywhere. You could do something to literally help people's mental sanity because so many people are on the edge. You do things that help people who aren't having enough to eat because of the reasons you described. And if you do those things and then this is over and you look back and you kind of go, boy, I, I would speak for myself. What regrets do I have? What opportunities didn't I take while this was going on? We haven't always been our best selves as a country, if we're totally honest, but we have an opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, that's very moving. We're talking on November 30th. Uh, you released an episode of your podcast today, and I heard the dean of Brown University School of Public Health say, yeah, there's vaccines coming. And he talked about other things like more options for testing, which open up options for opening up. Right. Maybe soon you can get like a 15 minute antigen test and it's affordable and you could take it before going to the restaurant you were thinking of going to or before going to work. And he talked, I think, about prophylactic treatments in addition to vaccines. So, you know, one question I didn't hear addressed there, which is like the primary question of my, yeah, it's like always my primary question, was like, what's this going to cost? Like, what's it going to cost us as individuals out of pocket? Who's going to have access to it? 
what are the prices going to look like? Well, per the ACA vaccines are supposed to be free. So it shouldn't cost you anything. If I have insurance. Um, no, it has nothing to do with whether you have insurance or not. Are you saying there's a part of our healthcare system that's actually organized to make sure that there's like universal access and that that is less expensive for us as a society in the long run? Are you saying that, that there's actually part of our healthcare system that does that? A very, very small part. Yeah. Yeah. There are provisions. Small but, like, kind of, small but kind of important right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so side note, I looked this up. Andy said the Affordable Care Act makes vaccines in general free for everybody, no matter what your insurance is. Not exactly. And of course, it's complicated. But the feds have announced that COVID vaccines will be free for just about everybody, insured or not, like COVID tests are supposed to be. In our last episode, we got into where folks run into potholes with that sometimes. So, you know, we'll keep our eyes open. But mainly, yeah, free vaccines. That's the plan. What about all these tests that would be so useful? for everybody. The idea is like, oh man, it would be so dope if I could like take a spit test before leaving home and know that it's okay for me to get on the subway and be in the office and that I'm not a risk to people. That'd be cool. Uh, What's that going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? So people haven't figured out how, how what they call asymptomatic tests, but let's say you want to go to a concert uh, to get in. Like, you know, there's no no one's insurance is going to pay for that. Or if your company wants to sample test everybody once every two or three weeks, the company's probably going to have to end up paying for that. So that hasn't all been worked out yet. But here's the thing that I've been working on is they've been charging $150 for a lot of these tests. And so I'm like, okay, I want to go figure out what it costs to make one of these tests. And guess what? It doesn't cost all that. You get look at the materials. There's some chemicals, which are a couple bucks. There's a big machine that things have to be processed into, but people are running huge volumes through these machines already anyway. So it depends how much they want to charge you for using that machine. Um, but people are making lots of money on it. So I got together with the NBA, that's the National Basketball Association, and uh, with Yale University, and we created a, a open source saliva test that any lab in the country could do that we got approval from the FDA on and that if people are charging like five bucks, seven bucks, ten, you know, whatever they, whatever they want to charge, they can, but it's uh, because we don't make a profit. We ask them to also do it at cost. And most people do They're Most of our academic labs. And the equipment is like off the shelf stuff. Like the, yeah, the yeah, Home yeah. Depot equivalent for research labs. Kmart. Kmart. You just yeah. get it. Kmart. Yeah. Okay. He's joking. Not really Kmart. And We tried to out-dad joke each other for a minute. Didn't really work. You do not need to hear it. So, we've learned vaccines are supposed to be free. We'll keep an eye on it. And there should be some low-cost testing options. So far, so good. But there's still going to be a lot of people needing treatment for COVID. People are already racking up bills. Andy is a connected guy. We'll get his take on what we might expect in just a minute. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That is a nonprofit news service covering healthcare in America. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with the big healthcare outfit Kaiser Permanente. We'll have a little more information about Kaiser Health News at the end of this episode. Okay, back to the conversation with Andy Slavitt. So given all the things we don't know, your insurance companies have said, hey, we're waiving all of your out-of-pocket stuff for COVID related care, right? But that's all voluntary. And if it's if you get your insurance through your job, for many people who get their insurance through their job, their employer has to sign off on it. Not everybody has insurance. 
So there's a lot of people at a lot of risk, right? I mean, I talked to a guy over the summer who was in the hospital for months. He was like out for months and he hit the jackpot twice. One, he woke up and he's now walking around. And two, his insurance actually covered his million dollar plus bill, right? But the idea that you have to like hit the jackpot to both to both to both survive a disease like this and to survive it financially is, you know, why I do the show. It's um, insane. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, you know, people like it's it is, you know, it's worse than that because you know, people get sick and they don't you know, like so I just have this I have a book coming out called Preventable and I want to talk to a lot of people who kind of lived through this and so I could tell their stories. This is one guy um lives here, he's got a two bedroom apartment and he's got seven daughters. He works at an Amazon warehouse. He got COVID. He got two weeks of paid sick time. After two weeks, they said you can only way you can get paid more paid sick time is if you have a COVID test. There were no COVID tests in the entire place. So he went without pay. The only other income in the family was they had a daughter who worked at a pharmacy. She called the pharmacy and said, I don't think I should be coming in because I might be infectious. The pharmacist said, if you don't have a COVID test, you don't get paid. She said, I can't get a COVID test. She didn't get paid. They couldn't afford medical care. He got worse and worse and worse. And that story is in the book, not because it's such an unusual story, but because it's such a common representative story. So what do you hope a Biden administration will do? And what do you think a Biden administration can do and what's going to require Congress to act? Free testing, free testing. I can't say that under every circumstance, like if you're at home and you want to go visit your grandmother and you want to go get a test to do it, like I can't, I can't say that, that they'll figure out how to do it in every circumstance. But I think they're going to have national drive-through testing sites that you can go through that will be free. I think that's their goal. That's testing. What about treatment? I mean, there's a lot of people super sick. Yeah. Um, with bills piling up. What can, what can an Biden administration do with or without a Democratic House and Senate to, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, we already have, right, unbelievably crushing bills, unbelievably crushing debt for so many people. What's, what's, what's on the, what's on the table? It's, it's a good question. Um, and I think you're, you're right to point to what happens in Congress. The open question, no one knows the answer to is what kind of bill can Biden work out with McConnell, presuming McConnell's still the majority leader? It is possible that the Democrats take the majority by the narrowest of margins, in which case they get more done, but I don't think they get all of those things done even in that circumstance. Because having a one-vote majority, you've just basically, think about it, you've just made 50 people the most powerful person in the country, right? So anybody can kill any bill, or it's either a recipe for a really bloated bill um, or it's a recipe for something that just doesn't get done. Now, Biden's a skilled legislator. If you're asking for what I predict, I tell you that the way these deals tend to work is if you want something, you have to give something. So what Joe Biden is good at doing and what all good deal makers are doing is sitting down with Mitch McConnell, not saying I want X, but he's saying, Mitch, what do you want? Now, that premise works great as long as McConnell wants something. The problem is Republicans often usually want a lot less. The Democrats want. They want to do less. So I think under those terms, I don't think you get everything you want or close to it. So what I'm hearing you say is, uh, one, 
if Mitch McConnell remains the majority leader, um, Democrats do not take these two Senate seats in Georgia. You only get a very small amount of what you hope for there. It's an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle. And 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 if on the, in the other scenario, uh, Democrats take these two uh, outstanding Senate seats in Georgia, it's still a very narrow walk because every senator is a potential deal breaker. So what I'm hearing you say is, Andy Slavitt, that that okay, great, like we've got some big tools coming. You know, the pandemic may not like keep us all at home with the rest of our lives, but like the this darkest before the dawn. I mean, there's still a lot of darkness in terms of the world we'll be stepping out into, and you know, the price we'll be paying for medical care. It's a it's not a, a it's not a bright shiny morning. So, look, the, there was a bunch of stuff that was broken before the pandemic. The fact that people can't, not everybody can pay for their health care. The fact that kids have to go to school in order to get lunch. The fact that so many kids can't do their homework because they don't have an internet at home. All these things were true before the pandemic. And they're going to be true after the pandemic too, unless people do something. Those things happen when a bunch of people get pissed off enough and they build a grassroots agenda, they build public support and they change things and it takes time. So um, one more question. It's a really big one. That sounded like a dare, the way you said it. Yeah, this evil, this evil look in your eyes. I got a big question for you now. <laughs> throw me back. Don't throw a brush, brush back pitch at me. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, great. I want to talk a little bit about you know your role in your day job, right? You run a venture capital fund that backs healthcare startups. Ooh, I and don't know. for this, sh- right? I mean, right? Go, keep going. A, keep going. Is that a fair description? Keep going. There's folks who think you know profit motive in general. Mm-hmm. Maybe a part of the problem with our healthcare, and in particular, like a venture capital yeah. model, where the hope is put in money and generate. And I kind of overdid things setting up this question, which made the rest of our conversation a little weird. I, I took note of some things I'd seen in Andy's bio for that venture capital fund and for other companies he advises, like that his pre-government career included a lot of places that do not have such great reputations these days among people who think that maybe capitalism is not the answer to every problem, like McKinsey Consulting. Goldman Sachs, United Healthcare, which seems fair for a show that spends a lot of time looking at how we get ripped off by big enterprises. But I also refer to specific bits of ugliness we associate with those names right now, stuff Andy wasn't personally involved with at all, which in retrospect was going overboard to set up this actual question. What do you say to folks who, who question whether market incentives are a good way to approach healthcare? Is that you know, your idea of the best approach? Is it your idea of like the best we can do given the system and the politics that we have in this country? And have your thoughts on that changed based on what you've seen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I I think you're right. I think there is um, uh, huge abuses and excesses that I try try to point to as much as possible, Uh, particularly um, the for-profits. They don't even be for-profit, non-for-profits, there's all kinds of uh, things that um, where people suck money out of the system and doesn't go to patient care. I will say you completely butchered my background. Oi, uh, yeah, things got kind of uncomfortable for a while. I felt bad. But Andy did steer us back to the main question. Which is, how do I feel about profits and health care? Which I think is an important question because you know we've created some of the worst excesses 
um, and we're not getting the basic job done. Healthcare is not affordable to people. So, so it's all broken. I wouldn't, I would, um, if I had to choose between a system that covered everybody a little worse or even more, even worse than we do today, um, or a system that's highly inequitable, that, that, that it's more expensive, and a lot of people didn't get care, I'd choose the first in a heartbeat. I'd be, I'd be, I'm, I'm all over the socialist side. If you ask me though, what do I think are the ingredients to a successful healthcare system? I would say it includes innovation. So, okay. I mean, people who, you know, are kind of for, right, the system that we have, like one of the big arguments for is like, well, don't you want innovation, right? Innovation is the, is the kind of key word um, that I hear in those arguments. And I hear you saying like, man, there's a lot of shit that's super fucked up and I would trade the system in, but I think innovation's good. And I, so like, are you saying that like, well, given the system that we have where, all the political realities that we live with, um, you know, innovation, that's a good place for me no, no, to spend, no, no. Andy's it, life to spend it, my time. Innovation, I mean, look, it depends what you're innovating. If you're building a Peloton, a nicer Peloton, I don't have any interest in that. I don't think innovation is the end-all be-all, but I do think moving innovation away from people who don't need it quite as much into communities that have long been ignored, that is one of my missions. And, and I, think it's, I think it's working in concert and combination. I talk to governors and Medicaid directors all the time. And Medicaid directors, they're like, I, I just need better actors. I need people out there who will do stuff better for people. Andy went on to talk about some really neat-sounding ventures that he now backs, like companies that serve moms on Medicaid, that train community health workers in low-income Brooklyn neighborhoods, that create better access to gender-appropriate care for trans people. As a reporter, I'd want to look closer, but they did all sound pretty cool. Here's how we left things. I'm seeing you as somebody who's like, well, I've got this knowledge. I've got these skills. How can I put my knowledge and skills to work? And you're seeing like, oh, there's there's places where a for-profit company can fulfill a needed service. That a system like Medicaid has needs that aren't yeah. being met by existing actors and like try to go fill those holes. I think I'm a problem solver. And I think I, what I know, the problems I understand the best are healthcare ones. But there are kid, people in their 20s and 30s, massive visionaries, incredibly talented, super mission-oriented. And if I could spend my time with them, helping them doing something that's trying to close the equity gap, uh, that's a good use of my time. Go forward. Well, speaking of time, uh, this is all the time you promised me, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate it. I think I'm late for something, which yeah. is entirely my fault because I've been pulling your leg and talking a lot, um, <laughs> which has been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, Take care. Uh, good luck, man. Thanks. Likewise. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Yeah. So not exactly the complete dive into the role of private enterprise in healthcare, but maybe we can have that conversation another time. Meanwhile, you can hear a lot more from Andy and a bunch of other smart experts on his podcast, In the Bubble, and you can follow him on Twitter at A Slavit. Meanwhile, I'll keep thinking about one of the things Andy said early on. If the pandemic isn't really going to last forever, what can I do now to be of service? That's it for right now. We got a couple more episodes coming up in December. They're going to be great. And we are already working on some stories for 2021. Meanwhile, I just want to thank everybody who's been making donations to support this show during Newsmatch, when anything you give us counts for double. It's amazing. We'll have a lot of names to shout out at the end here. And if you are even considering supporting us for the first time, consider this. 
Newsmatch has a challenge for us to get 100 first-time monthly supporters before December ends. And they say, if we hit that target, we get a bonus. They haven't said how much yet, but I want it. And whatever that bonus might be, this is kind of an amazing way to stretch your dollar if you can spare it. Because with any new monthly pledge, Newsmatch will give us a whole year's worth of matching up front. So you pledge three bucks a month in December, Newsmatch comes right back and gives us 36 bucks now. Bam. You can make that happen at armandalegshow.com slash support. And 100%, no pressure. These are tough times. A lot of folks need help. You may be one of them, or you may be stretching to provide that help. But if you happen to have a few bucks a month to help this show, Newsmatch can help us turn them into a lot of podcast goodness, which is awesome. The place to go is armandalegshow.com slash support. In any case, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you soon. Till then. Take care of yourself. An Arm and a Leg is produced by me, Dan Weissman, edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is from Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Camila Salazar helped produce this episode. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. It's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor. This guy, Henry J. Kaiser, he had his hands in a lot of different stuff, big stuff. Poured concrete for the Hoover Dam, built a chunk of the U.S. cargo fleet for World War II, that kind of stuff. When he died more than 50 years ago, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast, and Tanya English is senior editor for broadcast innovation at Kaiser Health News. They are editorial liaisons to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative, a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. Finally, Thank you to some of the folks who have pitched in at armandalegshow.com slash support. Long list here. You ready? Thanks this time to Frida K. Furman, Oscar Newman, Melissa Parker, Brian Shacklett, Jamie Green, Kyle Milkey, Regina Rodriguez-Martin, Craig Bechtel, Tamar and Elliot Frolickstein appell Alana Gagan, Kent Doherty, Mackenzie Grossgold, Max and Sophia Klatsker-Miller, Aviva Gaskill, Suzanne Griffel, Nick Powers, Shannon Roth, Sadie May, John F. Meyer, Elaine Gilman, Carol Fox, Henning Kalsman Freiberger, Yasmin Patino, Betty Rogenkamp, David Gardner, Anand Puriconnell, Teresa Rai Kim, Christy Uchida, Norman Simonton, Larry Moss, Daniel Snyderman, Steve Bonasso, Michael King, Alex Shear, Sarah Horner, Howe Schlanger, Orin Temkin, Dennis and Terry, Georgina Wilson, Sasha Shapiro. Megan Emmerich, Dave Heineman, Matt Schmidt, Ginny Cummings, Bree Season, Ashta Johnson, Jody Frank, Taylor Sublette, Erica Engel, Amelia Archer, Andrew Arell, Print and Marketing Solutions Group, Matt Van Artsen, Heather Markowitz, Steve Vigliotti, Sarah Little, Justin Levins, Carol Fox, Lisa Moore, and Lorenzo Griego. Thank you.